Hey, just a quick heads up. We are coming to the end of available spots for my new coaching program where I'm going to help you launch and grow a side hustle either from scratch or from an existing idea. There are only five spots. We are now uh, two, I believe, filled, potentially three, and there's like 20 people in the queue that might be interested. So this might be your last shot. If this is something you're interested in, head over to gregclunas.com slash coach right now and fill out the quick application to see if we're a good fit. That's gregclunas.com slash coach. I'll see you there. In this episode, I sit down with Cal Newport to talk about why passion might not be the most important thing in the world. Get excited because you are now listening to Tiny Leaps. Big Today's song comes from Culture Code. It's called Feel Again, and it features the vocals of Harley Bird. Now, I dig this because it is sort of your standard party song. It's very upbeat, very, uh, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? It's like good sounding chords. Like the chord progression is happy. That's what I'm looking for. Uh, It just puts you in a good mood. And I love being in a good mood when I'm listening to this show. So check out the artist. It's Culture Code. The song is called Feel You Again. Check it out and let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of Tiny Leaps. Big changes where I share simple strategies you can use to get more out of your life. My name is Greg Clunas, and in this episode, I'm speaking with the one and only Cal Newport. Cal is the author of So Good They Can't Ignore You, which I've done a book review on back in like the first five episodes of this show. So uh, after you listen to this, go check that out. And he is the author of Deep Work, which I haven't actually had the pleasure of reading, but I've heard from you guys, the listeners of this show, that it is incredible. And so it's on my book list for this year. Um, So I don't want to take too much time on the intro because Cal is obviously... uh, behemoth in this space. And, and so I, I just want to jump into it. Cal, how are you doing today? Hi, Greg. I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me on your show. Absolutely. I'm, I'm honored to, to have you. Um, so I, part of the reason I wanted to bring you on this show is uh, you have, as you, you detailed in So Good They Can't Ignore You, a very unique thesis around passion as it relates to your career, something that kind of goes against the grain when it comes to uh, what is out there as, as sort of the standard messaging. Uh, could you dive into that a little bit and how that came about? So the idea behind that book was that I was supposed to go out and answer a simple question, which is how do people end up loving what they do for a living. So I, I went into that. I looked at scientific research and also did quite a few uh, case studies of people who love what they do for a living, try to understand what was going on. And two things became very clear quite early in that process. Number one is that 
one of the most prominent pieces of advice you hear around career satisfaction is follow your passion. This sort of ubiquitous piece of advice. And number two, I discovered that this advice is pretty terrible. And by terrible, I mean telling someone to follow your passion is going to reduce the probability that they end up satisfied and passionate about their work. I think that one piece of advice has probably led to more unhappy careers than the invention of law school. That's the way I like to think about it. (laughs) That's good. Um, So uh, I'm curious, how long has it been now since you originally wrote the book? 2012, five years. Okay, going on five years. Uh, has anything happened between published date and now that has challenged your view on this or has it held pretty firm? Uh, no, my, my overall thesis hasn't really changed. I, you, you get nuances, certainly, once you get to get out there and hear from readers about putting the ideas into practice. But the basic idea about why follow your passion is bad advice is basically the following to tell someone to follow your passion depends on two things for this device uh, advice to be effective. The first thing is it assumes that someone has a pre-existing passion. So they have something they can identify to follow. The entire scheme to follow your passion falls apart if you don't have right. a passion to follow. And you get out there and talk to people, you look at the scientific research, and we just don't have a lot of evidence that this is common, that most people have these sort of pre uh, pretty clear, identifiable pre-existing passions. We just don't know if that's that common. So the advice becomes a source of frustration if that's not true. And my second uh, issue with this advice is that it's based on this notion that if you really like something and then you match this to your work, that that appreciation will carry over and you'll really like your work. And it's one of these sort of really simple style syllogisms that makes sense when you first hear it. Like, yeah, like I really like basketball. So if I get a job in the front office of the Washington Wizards, then I'm going to really love my job, right? But we don't have a lot of evidence that's true. Well, if you really look at the literature on career satisfaction, it's much more complicated and nuanced and, dare I say, interesting than simply there are some things you really like. You were born with it. It's ingrained. And if you match it to your work, you'll really like your work. So it was clear to me that those two things, those two things are flawed premises. And that's why follow your passion is bad advice. And really nothing I've seen or encountered or people I've met in the last five years has really changed my overall view that those premises are fundamentally flawed and we need more sophisticated, more sort of sharp and evidence-based strategies if we really want to get serious about helping people love what they do. Yeah, absolutely. And um, just for a little bit of context, I uh, part of the reason that this message and, and your book in general really resonated with me is um, so two two factors. One, uh, so I'm an immigrant. I was born in Jamaica, came here when I was eight to the U.S. and and have grown up here since. And um, as a first generation here, but the fact that I was a child meant that my parents sort of protected me from what typical first generation immigrants go through. Um, so they went through it. I just had to watch. And, um, my dad, I I remember for his, uh, his career, his job, since he was here, he, uh, he had a career in the bottling industry. So working in plants that handled major contracts for companies like Arizona iced tea and, and so on and so forth. And, um, handling sort of the quality control piece of it. And he loved his job, especially towards uh, the later half of his career. He absolutely loved it. And I remember when I was maybe 15, 16 and started thinking about careers and what I might do, um, thinking to myself, you know, everyone is telling me to follow my passion, 
But my dad is so incredibly happy with what he's doing. There's no way he's that passionate about bottling drinks. Um, like I couldn't wrap my head around how those two ideas connected. Um, and then the second piece of the puzzle that that really took form in college was uh, I realized there was absolutely nothing that I was passionate about. It's that first problem that you outlined, right? Like I didn't have a passion. I didn't have a thing that mattered to me or that I cared about enough that I wanted to build my entire life around it. And so if that was the case, what do I do? Um, so so that's what I, I really love about the book is that you, you sort of hit on both of these problems that I noticed growing up. But I'm curious, you know, in this research, what did you find uh, actually factors into building a career that matters and, and that you end up loving? Like, why was my dad so happy? Well, when you look into the research, there's multiple different factors that are involved in career satisfaction and different combinations depending on the situation in person. But a few things we know are important is one is a sense of autonomy. So the more sense you have that you have some control or say in what you do and how you do it leads to a lot of satisfaction. Two, we know that a sense of mastery is important. You're, you're good at something, you're doing something at a high level that can lead you to be very satisfied. Uh, three, a sense of sort of impact is often important. You're doing something that that has a positive impact on the world or on the community. And then four, often some sort of connection, connection with who you work with, connection with other peoples can be a big source of satisfaction. Now, you'll notice that none of those traits are specific to a particular job. None of those traits have anything to do with precisely matching the content of your job with some sort of pre-existing inclination. And it's why stories like your dad's are very, very common. I mean, this is like one of the first things I, I, I noticed when I started doing my research. I just talked to people like your dad who love what they do. And it was eight or nine out of 10 had no idea in advance that that's what they're going to be doing with their life. Almost none of them said, I was passionate about this. I knew that's what I had to do. And then I went and found a job for it. So it, it almost boggles the mind. Why didn't we just do this before? Why is no one even asking people who love what they do and asking their right. stories? And you would see how rare it is. So in your dad's case, for example, uh, there's probably definitely a sense of mastery, especially that came as he went farther in his career and was whatever his role was at the plant, you know, that he, he was good at it, had, had built up some sort of authority and respect. He probably had strong sense of connection to the people that, uh, he was working with. And often as people get later in their careers, they gain more autonomy. They simply gain more control over what they do and how they do it. Those type of things lead to satisfaction. Uh, Mike Rowe from dirty jobs gave this sort of famous off the cuff Ted talk. And in it, he made the same point. He said, I ran this TV show, where I was, I'm paraphrasing here, but he, said, he was spending time with people that had what on paper seemed like the worst jobs you could imagine, like roadkill scrapers, <laughs> uh, septic tank cleaners, and these type of people. He said, these guys were whistling on their way to work. And he, he, his, his point was, I don't know how to square that observation, same issue you had. I don't know how to square that observation with this idea that you have to figure out in advance what you're passionate about. But what he found is that these people that he was, he was finding on Dirty Jobs had tons of autonomy. These were their companies. They were doing very well on them, and they were very good. There's often skilled trade involved, and they're very good at it. And these made them love their work. And so this is the sort of the nutshell. This is the more sophisticated story of career satisfaction, is that we have these general traits that are agnostic to the specific content of your work. 
that are at the core of the type of passion and satisfaction that most of us seek. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so somewhere that my head immediately goes and I, I just, I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, uh, those factors that you just outlined that typically uh, lead to more career satisfaction, how does that translate to sort of the current state of uh, millennials building careers? Uh, so I'm, I'm a millennial myself, I'm 25. And one of the things that I've definitely noticed in my own life and, and amongst the people that I, I communicate with daily is that much of advancement in your career requires you to move sideways rather than up. Um, so when you're not staying at the same company for years, when you're not necessarily in the exact same type of role for years, like how, how does that formula translate over? Well, there's a bit of a chicken and an egg type situation going on here with current workplace trends because people do talk about this need to constantly be shifting, that you have to constantly be shifting. Uh, on the other hand, though, some of that is a, an outcome, I believe, of this philosophy that was told to us, the millennial generation. We were the first generation to be raised with this, but we were raised with it so seriously that uh, it's all about match and finding the right work. And the match of the work to you and your personality is what matters. This leads to naturally lots of shifting from jobs to job. You're like, this isn't quite right for me. Maybe this is a little better. Now let me try that. Whereas if you study people who end up getting a lot of passion for their work, often the key tool they use is skill. That the, the, the key piece of leverage that gains you all of those traits that leads to passion and satisfaction almost always is becoming, and this is where the title comes from, so good that you can't be ignored. It's sort of a head-down apprenticeship-type drive to hone an unambiguously valuable skill in the marketplace. You do that, and suddenly you have a say in your career. You have leverage. You don't do that. And we see a lot of drifting going on. First of all, some of it is driven by the person themselves. Like, maybe this is not for me. Let me keep shifting. And without that core, unambiguously valuable skill, it's also driven by the market pressures. It's easier for companies to say, let's drop you or take you on just temporarily, or we don't really need you anymore. You're more interchangeable or replaceable. There's only so many millennial social media brand managers that can be out there. <laughs> it's just not hard enough. Like, right. you know what I mean? It's, and so there's a lot of that, that going on. So it's a bit of a chicken and an egg. And so often what I advise, the formula I advise is pick a skill that seems interesting to you. And like uh, Steve Martin putting his head down to learn comedy, and that's the source of the quote, be so good they can't ignore you. Try to be yeah. so good you can't be ignored. Uh, that actually promotes more stability because you're looking at what you're offering as opposed to looking around and seeing what other jobs might offer you. So you're less likely to jump jobs more quickly. And as you build an unambiguous skill, organizations desperately don't want to let you go. And, and so that, that only gives you more stability. It starts to give you the leverage. And it's that leverage that allows you to start acquiring those traits like autonomy, like mastery, like impact. It's going to lead to a lot of satisfaction. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so, so you actually said something in there that I want to pull out. Uh, you mentioned, so on this topic of skills, picking a skill that, that would work for you, uh, how do you decide on that skill? Are you looking at the market and saying, okay, this is what's valuable right now, let's say programming or whatever it is? Or like if, if passion isn't necessarily involved, how do you pick a skill to dive deep into? 
Yeah, this is it's a good question. It's, it's a bit of a hard question. Uh, part of what's sort of uh, ironic or a little bit sort of vicious about the current setup that us millennials face is that uh, the anecdote to the passion culture of you're meant to do one thing is slowed down by this very idea that you're meant to do one thing. So people often get caught up like, okay, great. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to build up one rare and valuable skill as a, as a alternative to just trying to find the perfect job. But then they start to wonder, well, what is this one skill I need to build up? And then it, it circles back to, well, what is it that I'm really passionate about? <laughs> and that's how I'll choose what skill to build up. So it can be this sort of uh, vicious circle. My advice is usually, uh, you take the choice seriously, but don't take it too seriously. There, you can't do it arbitrary, but it's not the highest stakes. What you're you're not trying to what you're not trying to do here is figure out like well, one thing you're really meant to do. There is no one thing like that. You're instead trying to find something that uh, is interesting. That seems like there is a lot of interesting options, or the market values it. So getting good at it would it would get you a lot of value in the market and a lot of options. And three, if it builds on an existing base of skill or ability you already have, that's usually a good plus because that saves you time. There could be many different things that satisfy those constraints. And usually my argument is it doesn't really matter then which one you choose. So it's not an arbitrary choice, but I want to lower the stakes here. You're not trying to figure out the one thing that'll make you happy. You're just trying to do a pretty reasonable assessment of here are some things that would be feasible for me to try to hone, it looks like the market would value them. I find them interesting. Maybe it builds on some existing skill. You have a list of four or five of those. And then how you choose between those four or five uh, is not particularly interesting. There's no right or wrong way to do it at that point. Support for this episode comes from Podcast Movement. Podcast Movement is the world's largest gathering of new and veteran podcasters or anyone looking to start their own podcast the right way. Join over 2,000 podcasters from around the world in Philadelphia this July 23rd through 26th for three days of workshops, panels, parties, and more. They've got the best of the best. They've got world-class speakers, people that are running multi-million dollar generating podcasts, presenting and sharing what is working right now and what is going to be working in the future. So that's why I hooked up with Podcast Movement to get you a special deal. I am such a huge fan of what this conference has done. I remember when they first launched and I got connected with the founders and just seeing their growth and seeing them become the number one conference on podcasting for both veterans and newbies alike has been amazing. So I wanted to make sure I got you a special deal. If you want to get $50 off any level of registration, that's any level, $50 off, all you have to do is go to podcastmovement.com and enter the code TINYLEAPS. That's podcastmovement.com. Enter the code TINYLEAPS to get $50 off any level of registration. This is the must-attend conference for podcasting. If you have any interest whatsoever, any curiosity, get a ticket, get $50 off. You're not going to regret it. Go to podcastmovement.com, enter the code TINYLEAPS. Got it. So then here's an interesting question for you. Um, and this is actually kind of uh, personal to me at the moment. It's something I'm experiencing. Uh, let's say you were starting over today. Uh, I know that, that you're a... Uh, are you currently a professor? 
Yeah. Okay. So I know you're a university guy. Um, let's say you're starting over today and you graduated, you got your bachelor's, you maybe got three, four years under your belt in some job and you're, you're realizing, okay, I want to uh, go in a different direction. How would you go about sampling sort of skills that you could dive deep into, especially if those skills would require you to go and get a PhD or a, a like further education that has sort of a high cost attached to it? Yeah, transitions are interesting. So there's a couple things that are useful. Uh, one, in my book, I, I talk about this sort of metaphorical substance I call career capital. And, and the way I suggest you think about your skills is that as you get better at something, you imagine that you're acquiring more career capital. So the better you get at valuable things, the more career capital you have. It's then that career capital that you invest to get the traits in your job that makes great jobs great. When you start thinking about it that way, it really affects the way you think about transitions. Uh, it changes your mindset of transitions away from simply the content of the work. Right? It changes your mindset from... I don't really like this and maybe my day-to-day experience I would enjoy better if I did this job instead. And instead you start thinking about career capital. Well, I have this much career capital already, uh, but there's these things in my current job I really don't like that's going to mean that this is not where I need to be. How can I transition in a way that's going to allow me to preserve and build on a lot of that capital, right? And you start thinking in those ways. Like, well, I don't necessarily want to empty my career capital stores, stores down to zero. So maybe leaving again a PhD in a completely unrelated subject is not going to be the thing to do. But if I take this existing skill I developed in this job, that would be relevant over here. But over here, I could probably leverage this capital more to have more autonomy to build it. So you start thinking in terms of the skills you have, how much capital you've built, how you can take that with you and build on it faster because the goal becomes career capital acquisition, not uh, matching of jobs to interest or optimizing your perceived day-to-day experience of the job. Once you've done that and you're still trying to decide between some choices, I find it really useful to try to study particular people in the field or career that you're thinking about who are uh, more advanced than you are and whose current circumstances resonate with you and try to figure out okay, what was it that got them to that circumstance? If they're, at, they're very successful in the field and they have these things in their life that resonates with you, try to understand, well, what differentiates them from people who aren't there, who are much farther down in the field? And this sort of differential analysis helps you start to pull out you know, particular skills. Well, you know what it was? It was that they were great at X or they were good at this. And it's sort of like investigative journalistic work to start using evidence to pick out, okay, in this particular field, what really seems to matter for the type of careers in that field that really resonate with me and what doesn't really matter. Got it. So do you think that there's um, just your general opinion? Do you, do you believe that there are certain types of careers that certain people are more suited to, or do you think that it, it doesn't necessarily matter? It's just about developing skill. I think there's definitely preferences and probably aptitudes that are relevant in these choices. Uh, But people seem pretty good at taking that into account when they're making these decisions. You know, I'm not worried (laughs) in some sense. I'm not worried that if there's something that someone is terribly suited for and something else that they seem better suited for that, that unless I really tell them, Hey, be careful about making your choice that it's reasonably well suited for you, that they're going to sort of choose the wrong thing. We're pretty good at realizing this and putting them into our choices. Um, My concern is when people push that model too far and say, it's not just that I'm a little bit more mathy than I am 
artsy or I'm a little bit more introverted than I'm extroverted. Those are all very relevant aptitudes and preferences that could help you to think this type of careers are reasonable. These aren't. That's fine. And I don't dispute that. My concern is more where people push that to the next extreme, which is, okay, but now there's a specific career that I'm best suited for. And most aren't. So for most people, when you take into account your sort of common sense aptitudes and preferences, it does disqualify a lot of things. uh, But it also leaves many, many different options that make sense on paper. And a lot of my argument is, that's fine. There are going to be a lot of different options. Don't sweat the choice at that point. Focus at that point more on what you do after you choose the job than you spend thinking about what job you choose. Right. So then is there any scenario where... Uh, you would recommend to somebody to drain that career capital and make a leap elsewhere? Like, is, can you think of any scenario where that would make sense? Oh, yeah. Like, for example, um, I mean, certainly that happens. Where, where, where it tends to happen is if you've, you've built up a lot of career capital in an uh, incredibly narrow skill set, and you realize at some point my options with this capital is limited or there's something about this field that I just really don't like. It maybe conflicts with my values or, or, or what have you. And it doesn't transfer very much anywhere else. So, I mean, for example, if you, if you really went all in on uh, being a professional musician and at some point uh, realized this lifestyle is not going to work for me at all. I hate being on the road. I hate being up late. I want to have a family, whatever it is. That capital is probably doesn't translate to almost anything else. If you're very good at the mandolin, uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty narrow, it's pretty narrow. <laughs> not many other uses for that. What I see more often is not the, necess- the, the need to do complete drainings, but you do see quite common, you know, people having to do, uh, you can think of it as like disposing a, a pretty sizable chunk of their capital to make a change. And, and usually what it is in that case is the field they're in, uh, they're looking forward and realizing that no matter how much capital they build up, they almost certainly are not going to be able to cash it in for the traits to make great career trait. Uh, great. Right. That um, I've worked with some like investment bankers uh, for which this is true, that they really value uh, autonomy and time freedom and a couple other things. And they realize they can never get that. They will never be able to get that in the field. I mean, getting better just means they're going to be more worked. <laughs> the reward for being even better is you get um, even less autonomy and even more sort of uh, uh, time constraints. And so they have to, when they make a shift, they sometimes are putting a lot of this very specific capital they've learned about particular types of finance and throwing it out. And what they're leaving in the bank is sort of like quantitative skills, for example, or other things. Um, so, you know, don't be afraid about that does happen. But just don't be when I when I'm advising, especially uh, other young people about this, is don't be too flippant about disposing your capital. <laughs> you know, you know, all things being equal, you want to try to preserve as much as possible because the goal is to get the trace to make a great, great career trade. Uh, great, don't lose sight of that goal and get too caught up in right. your perceived notion of like maybe the day to day is going to be nicer in this job versus that job. I often tell college grads. Don't, when you're thinking about jobs to take, you're not thinking about what your life's going to be like in June. You need to think about what your life could be like in five years. That's the job you're, you're, that's the job you're actually considering is, okay, if I do the apprenticeship, if I build the skill, if I become so good, they can't ignore me, what options is that going to give me? And that's really what you should be thinking about when you're trying to assess different options. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so I'm, I'm curious if you had to, because one of the things I, I uh, recently realized is that there's, 
outside of this, you know, uh, passion thing, there's very little out there helping people my age and, and even younger figure out how to think about their career and how to sort of map out, you know, that standard interview question, where do you want to be in 10 years? Um, now I'm, I've been fortunate since the age of 13 or so in that I've always wanted to go the entrepreneur route. I've always wanted to create things. And on the side of working my full-time job, I'm taking the actions to make that possible full-time. Um, but for someone who doesn't have that desire from however long, like how should they be thinking about the first job after college? Like, should it be, or let's go even before that. How should they be thinking about the degree they pursue? Yeah, that's, so if we, if we go all the way back to the degree, um, often my advice about that is what's really important often is that you make the choice and you don't feel like the choice was uh, put on you. Um, and that's entirely from a motivation perspective. I, I used to do a lot of work with college students. And what's important to me is if you felt like you made the choice of the degree, you're going to have a more of an intrinsic motivation, which will make it much easier to get through the difficulty of upper level coursework. And so you're much likely to do well and stand out in that program, which ultimately is what's going to be potentially even more valuable than necessarily the specifics of the degree. And so that's one bit of advice I give. Another bit of advice I give is if there's a particular subject that you're really interested in studying, and but you're worried about its uh, professional impact, do it really well, be a standout, but then add in a minor or another major that's completely orthogonal and catches people off guard. You're studying art history, but you have mathematics as a minor or something like this. This creates a very, so it allows you to sort of, again, be motivated and following things you chose are interesting, but it creates this very interesting portrait of yourself out there when you go to the marketplace of someone whose mind is broad and sharp and and, and quick moving. And I have a couple other heuristics about choosing a degree too. But as you imagine from how I think about uh, careers, I'm not a big believer in there's one major you're meant to do and everyone else is going to make you miserable. I like to tell students, no matter mm-hmm. what you choose, you'll be miserable at some point just because the courses get hard. And don't let that trick you into thinking, right. oh, this is the wrong choice and I need to switch. It was actually college majors that got me started thinking about some of these passion issues. Because I used to advise college students and I kept seeing the same story again and again, where students in their midway through their junior year would say, I've chosen the wrong major. This is not what I'm meant for and switch it. And it causes a lot of problems to switch your major that late because you're behind on the coursework you need. And I I Mm -hmm. finally realized that they were thinking about majors the same way we think about careers, which is there's one you're meant to do and you'll know you've made the right choice because you'll love it every day. And so, so what would happen is by the time they get to the middle of their junior year, they're taking the upper level courses and those are hard and they would mistake that hardness as, Oh, this must not be my passion. I need to switch my major. So for me, I I said, you you choose something, the choice should be yours, bring into it, whatever factors are important to you. And that could be professional application. That's fine. But just make the choice yourself and then stick with it. And don't worry so much when you get to your junior year and it starts to get hard. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. One of the things that uh, during my college years, so I I had five different majors in college uh, for this exact reason. Um, like I went in marketing, I ended up uh, graduating art and there was a slew of things in between, uh, partially because 
there is a lot of pressure on college students, I feel, in that the major funnels directly into what we perceive is going to be our career, right? So if I go in marketing uh, and I graduate with a marketing degree, that's the direction I'm, my career is going to be pushed. Um, but would you say that as you build up that career capital, it allows you to not necessarily be a marketing person or an accounting person or whatever it is, but more so the the company you're at or wherever you end up looks at you as total value instead of, you know, the degree you have. Is that a, an accurate read or no? So sort of my, my read is we, when you're coming out of college, you overvalue the sort of specifics of your training and how much the marketplace cares about it. Because so when you're coming out of college, all you've done is you've been in college and you have your degree and you, you really extrapolate. Like I studied this in college. This really matters. Like this is it. This is what I do. This marketplace is really interested in hiring me because they want marketing and I studied marketing. Um, but the reality is of the entry-level marketplace is, as, as far as the market is concerned, you don't know anything relevant to their business. I mean, you haven't been in their particular industry. You haven't learned right. or proven yourself. Maybe the fact that there's some rough alignment behind what you are studying and, and what they're doing, maybe that's kind of useful getting you in the door. But what they care about is you're coming in the door, you got to build skills and prove yourself. And I think it's very helpful to think about yourself as coming out of college with a very small career capital account. And so you're, you're trying to get a job in a field where if you get good, you're going to really like being in that field and then say, I'm starting with zero in my bank account. So how quickly can I build in the real world unambiguous skills? And so the, the don't overvalue. And yeah, this could, this is why I often, and I'm a little bit biased this cause I, I went, I went to and work at sort of old distinguished liberal arts schools that have their own sort of way of thinking about things and you know everyone should study theology will be fine and people get away with it there too so there's some bias to it um but this notion of just uh you know study something a little bit general and hard and something that's been around for a long time so people know what it is and do really well at it is sort of a general indication of i'm smart and that helps you get in the door and then build specific skills relevant to the industry that you're in Got it. That makes a lot of sense. That, that makes a ton of sense, especially, I mean, I've been out of school now for three going on four years and uh, it definitely has been the skills I've gained, whether on the side in college uh, from side projects or uh, just in the real world that have created all the opportunities I've had. My degree has actually been worth nothing. <laughs> Other than the fact that you have one, like that kind of is the reality. Yeah, and your exactly. GPA, it's interesting. Like, for, like for, you know, I, I paid a bunch of money. That's about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, which is a, which is a whole reality, and and so it's why you don't want to get too caught up in school about thinking that you're building up these specific skills is going to get you a specific job because the there's pluses and minuses to the sort of market economy in which these jobs exist. Uh, the minus is that it's ruthless, right? I mean, it wants things that are rare and valuable and it'll value things that are rare and valuable and it won't value things that aren't rare and valuable. They don't care that you're a nice guy or that you're passionate about this or that you have some plan that you want to execute. But the positive of this is that it makes it's easy to understand. And so it's, if you start building up something that's rare and valuable, the market will really reward it. Now there's obviously lots of other factors involved and there's, there's all sorts of sort of structural issues and biases that can impact uh, how much reward someone gets versus another, how hard it is to get noticed. And all those things are true, but the mechanism underlying it is still the same is 
the more you have a skill that's very invaluable, uh, the more autonomy and leverage that gets you. And so I think about leaving college as like the starter pistol is firing. You're like, I want to get my head down and move as quickly as possible. Because once you start building those skills, that's when careers get cool. I mean, I, I came out of college mm-hmm. with two, two pursuits I wanted to do. I wanted to write and I wanted to be a uh, theoretical computer scientist. I want to do that type of theoretical work. It took about 10 years, because those are hard skill fields, but 10 years of head down skill building. And after about 10 years of that, things got really cool. <laughs> and they're really cool jobs. I'm really having a good time. Uh, but it wasn't that way two years out of school. You know, uh, but now, it, you know, it, and that's kind of the reality of it is that the, the sort of skill building stage, it's not that it's terrible, it's satisfying to build skills. We like craftsmanship. It's, it's, there's something intrinsically satisfying to it. But jobs don't get cool until you can do cool things. And that takes some time and it takes some, some pretty uh, intense focus to build up your ability to do cool things pretty quickly. It's a really good way of thinking about it, actually. Jobs don't get cool until you can do cool things. Yeah, which is why you need. So yeah, I'm, I'm, Go on. No, um, I'm really curious, and this is something that I thought when I originally read the book. Um, how do you think these like approaches relate to the, not the career? So, so the concept of passion and, and uh, pursuing only things that you love, and, and so on and so forth but outside of the career realm and more sort of for your own personal improvement and development? Well, one thing I've noticed, and I I touched on it somewhat in my more recent book, Deep Work, uh, is that in general, human beings seem wired to find great satisfaction in sort of doing hard things well. And this extends well beyond just a career realm. So for example, in people's leisure time, you know, having some sort of pursuit you do, some sort of craft or skill or hobby you do at like a very high level of skill is just much more satisfying than lots of sort of passive consumption of things. This is definitely true in relationships, right? Um, this is an issue with a, a current age of social media is not that there's anything wrong with having the ability to keep up or contact people through social media. That's, that's a nice technological advance, but there's a lot of young people who now that plus text messaging, um, will use it as a substitute for more sort of difficult, uh, but rewarding in person, hard work relationships. But if you, you know, focus on building a strong relationship, I'm going to spend time, I'm going to dedicate myself to this person, make some sacrifices, be involved in person, do these type of things. It's like much more rewarding. Then uh, I kind of talk to this person, that person, and, and I, I you know, Snapchat and tweet that person, do some text messages here. So there's a lot of different areas in life for this sort of craftsman mindset of don't do too much and do the things you do really well. We see much more wired for it. So you don't need a thousand friends on social media, but really be a fantastic friend to like 10 people in your life. You don't need to um, consume a thousand different things during your leisure time, but have one or two things that are really meaningful to you and do them really well. Uh, these types of focus on doing small number of things like a craftsman really well seems to return value to human beings regardless of the context. Got it. So it's almost like the, the general rule of thumb across both career and in regular life is, is the more you can embrace that it is a journey, the happier you're going to be on that. It's a journey, be selective, don't do too much, uh, but do the things you do, with a lot of presence and a lot of focus and a lot of commitment 
that that that's the, that builds a good life. Um, don't always be jumping from thing to thing. Don't be looking for the quick hit or the sugar high. It's you know do a small number of things are important. Do them well. Be fully present for them. Know why you're doing them. It used to be the motto of my website when I was doing more student advising was do less, do better, know why. Because that was my pattern for college students. I, I did a lot of work with students who were getting overstressed in college, and this was my sort of mantra for them. Do less. Don't have three majors. Don't do 19 clubs. Focus on a small number of things, but do those things really, really well and know why. Here's why I'm doing them. Here's why I chose them. And that formula was my formula for building a career in college that was satisfying and successful, but also um, very livable and enjoyable. And I, I like that mantra basically in all parts of life. You know, don't do too much, but do the things you do really mm-hmm. well and, and know why you're doing it. Have a good reason for why, why you're spending your time on the things. So uh, say that mantra again. It's do less, do better. And- know why. So do less, know why. do better, okay. know why you're doing it. I just sort of cut off the last part so Got it was it. You know, symmetric. Got it. Well, Cal, I, I just want to uh, say thank you so much for sharing your time and your experience with us. Um, where can, for the listeners who no doubt want to support you, how can we best do that? Uh, I have a website, calnewport.com where I have a blog I've been doing for over a decade now. And I write about all these types of ideas. Um, so if you're interested in these type of ideas, that's a great place just to dive in and see the type of things I think about, type of things I write. And if that catches your attention, I've written some books. <laughs> you can find those wherever, wherever uh, books are sold. Perfect. So, uh, and then the two that are relevant, so good they can't ignore you in deep work. Um, and that's calnewport.com. So of course, all of that will be linked up. So Cal, again, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your insights. I know career is one of the big uh, pillars that I talk about on this show, but I'm obviously very early in my own career. And, and so it's always nice to have someone on that can shed a little bit of light on how we should be thinking about these things. Well, thanks for having me on. I, I always appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. And in part, because I just don't know why we don't have more people thinking harder like you're doing about these questions of career. It's complicated and makes a big difference in people's lives. And I think we are ready. At least I can say us millennials are ready to get past slogans we need more than just hey follow your passion all work out we're ready for sort of the hard sophisticated game plan science and heuristics that tend to work better in reality absolutely 100 percent. so that is my interview with cal newport be sure to check out his uh, two books so good they can't ignore you as well as deep work. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, be sure to click the subscribe button. That's the easiest way to make sure that new episodes are delivered directly to you when you want them. Also, share this episode with one person that you think would benefit from it. I'm real big on person to person sharing. And I think there's so much value in this episode that plenty of people could get a lot of value out of it. So if you know someone, your sister, your brother, your cousin, your dog, your dog's nephew, whoever it is, share it with that single person and just let them know that you care about them. You care about them navigating their career in the best way possible because Cal just dropped some heat and that heat needs to be picked up by somebody. 
Thanks again for listening. I've been Greg Clunas. Be sure to subscribe. I know I already said it, but I got to say it twice just to make sure you do it. Subscribe and remember that all big changes come from the tiny leaps you take every day. Every day.